in him. Come down from the cross in the same way the chief priests also, along with the scribes and elders, were mocking him and saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him now come down from the cross, and we will believe in him. If he trusts in God, let God rescue him now. He, if he delights in him, for he said, I am the son of God. The robbers who had been crucified with him were also insulting him with the same words. But Jesus knew that he was doing the right thing. He knew that his father would come through for him. He knew he was dying for sinful people. He knew very clearly what he was doing, done. We talk about people dying for no reason. Jesus died for a lot of good reasons. The most important death in the whole history of the world by far. He had purpose. He had reason. Everlasting purpose and reason. So he knew this. He knew that he was dying for sinful people. People who then would, would repent of their sins and put their trust in him and then be forgive them, forgiven. I was thinking of, I read, uh, I read this Mark chapter 2. I like this verse about forgiveness. The Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So here's Jesus dying on the cross, and he has the authority, of course, with God the Father. The Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive people's sin. And you remember what Jesus said on the cross, forgive them for they know not what they do. And, and indeed, that's why he was dying, to forgive them and, of course, to forgive us as well. Back to Psalm 22, verses 9 and 10. Yet you are he who brought me forth from the womb. You made me trust when upon my mother's breast. Upon you I was cast from birth. You have been my God from my mother's womb. Interesting verses. Again, this, this, this theme, this point here about Jesus having faith, that Jesus trusting God is, is made very clear here. And it's shown further in these verses. God himself is the one, of course, we know that brought Jesus into the world. And, and, and God himself, through the work of the Holy Spirit, was making, was forming, was creating the body of Jesus while he was in there. Then, of course, God brought him forth. And what's so amazing, and this is true, is that here's this little Jesus inside his mother's womb, and then he's born as baby, and he's both God and man. I mean, I just, I just can't fathom that, but that's the truth. He was God and man. And so Jesus trusted in God when he was in Mary's womb. And when he was a little baby, you've all seen little babies, He's trusting in his father. When he's a little baby and when he was a toddler and, and a young boy and when he was uh, a youth and a teenager and a young man and during his ministry years and then, of course, when he's on the cross, his whole life, trusting his father, trusting his father. That's what was going on. And Jesus' faith in his father, his complete and total reliance on him was the key to his successful life, his successful ministry, and then being able to die on the cross for us. So he, he's on the cross. What was going on? What was going through his mind? He was trusting his father. That's, that's what was happening. He trusted his father for the grace and the peace and the strength that is needed. I think of those verses in, in 2 Corinthians. It says, when I am weak, then I am a strong. So here Jesus is talking about weak. Talk about weak. But he was strong. Strong because of the grace of God. Psalm 22, verses 11 to 13. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help. Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They opened wide, they opened wide their mouth at me as a raven, ravening and roaring lion. He prays again. Do not be far from me, for trouble is near. And so the only way that Jesus could victoriously make it through these horrendous and hellish six hours by faith was by trusting in his Father. He was like saying, hey, Father, I got all this trouble. Man, these, these people around me, they, 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 they're strong, like animals. 
like ferocious, and he uses the example there of lions and bulls. And so it's an interesting analogy, but he wants us to understand it was tough because of them. And of course, God gave him all the strength that he needed. I thought of that verse in, in Psalm 18, verse 1. It says, I love you, O Lord, my strength. I, I can't help but think he thought of that too. He says, you're my strength. I love you, O Lord, my strength. We continue, verses 13 to 18. They open wide their mouths to me as a ravening and roaring lion. I'm poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a pot's herd, and my tongue cleaves to my jaws, and you lay me in the dust of death. Dogs have surrounded me. A band of evildoers has encompassed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look, they stare at me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So he continues to pray to his father, even though his father does not respond. His father is completely silent here. And, but, but yet, Jesus knows what? Even though his father does not respond, he knows that his father hears him. He knows that. He knows that he will have the victory over sin and death. That's what he understands. And Jesus then, it's, it's interesting because this is the section more than any where we really see what he was going through physically. And I'm, not, I'm just going to make a few comments here, but he's telling, Jesus, telling his father about his physical condition. At first he says, all his bones, all his bones are out of joint. And I think all, you sure, all, all his bones. And, and of course what's going on is the weight of his body pulling down, continually pulling down, got his bones pulled out of their sockets. I can't imagine what that would feel like. He says his heart is like wax. The physical stress that Jesus is going through is putting this incredible pressure, this unbelievable strain upon his heart. I have no idea what that means. It feels like wax. But that's what he felt, okay? Physically going on, it felt like wax. Very little strength. He's physically exhausted and, of course, severely, severely dehydrated. And Jesus knows he's close to death. He knows that it won't be long before his body completely gives out and he physically dies. And so he feels then, and we, we read on here, it says he feels his extreme pain in his hands and feet. Hands and feet that have been pierced by these long nails, these huge spikes. And, and every time Jesus would push up from the cross, this screaming pain would be shooting through his extremities, his hands and feet, that is, because of that. So all these different things. He says he can con all his bones, wherever his bones are at, which is most every part of his body, because of the extreme weight and pressure there was. And so, again, incredible, incredible pain. Then we read about these evildoers of like dogs surrounding him, like dogs going in for the kill. They stare at him, and of course, these are not looks of love or kindness, but looks of hate and malice and, and anger. Not only that, but they're gambling away his clothes. Here's, here's Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the creator of the world, the one who made them, the one who is the savior of sinners. Here's the one who's going to be the king over the world, and they're gambling away his clothes. We continue, verses 19 to 21. But you, O Lord, do not be far, from, far off. O you, my help, hasten to my assistance. Deliver my soul from the sword, my only life from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth, from the horns of the wild oxen. You answer me. So again, he prays to his father, and here he calls him Lord, his master. And of course, that just means he's the one in charge. He's praying to the one who is in charge of everything. That's what he was doing. And again, he asks for help. But what he's saying here is hasten, that is hurry up, bring this incredibly, unbelievably difficult ordeal to an end. 
That's what he's praying. He's, he's praying for deliverance, for his life to be rescued from these enemies. We just talked about the animals before. They're referred to again here. And again, he uses these animals to illustrate the severe pain, that the severe peril that he was in. And, and there's, like lions, he said, like oxen, like wild dogs, all animals who would be extremely dangerous and deadly. Back then, they had packs of wild dogs. You know that. And so that's what was going on. I mean, you, can you just imagine this? All these people around him, all these enemies just screaming and, hell and, he, screaming and yelling and spewing out hate. Psalm 22, verse 22 to 24. I will tell of your name to my brethren in the midst of the, in the, midst of the assembly. I will praise you. Um, yet you who, fear, you who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, glorify him. And stand in awe of him, all you descendants of Israel. For he has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. For he is, nor has he hidden his face from him. But when he cried to him for help, he heard. From you comes my praise in the great assembly. I shall pay my vows before those who fear him. Most people, when they share in Psalm 22, don't go here. That's enough. Enough about Christ's suffering. But it's the whole psalm. Right away, right away here we see it's sort of a sudden shift. It's a sudden change, really dramatically so. It shifts to his glory. That's what's going on. Suffering and glory. That's, we understand that's, that's the way life is to be even for us. There's suffering and there's glory and this helped Jesus. You see, Jesus was trusting his Father. He knew that his Father loved him. And the third thing he had was hope, right? We need faith. We need hope. We need love. And he had all three. And this then describes his hope. But verse 24, the, the verse I want to look at first, for he has not, not despised me. That is, that is, Jesus says God has not despised him, which means God has not ignored him. God has not looked down on him. God has not disregarded what Jesus is going through. He's not abhorred him. He's not loathed him. He's not detested him. That is, that is, and Jesus knew this. Jesus knew that his, his father greatly loved him, that his father deeply cared about him. He knew that that was important. He might have felt at times like he did, but he knew in his heart that he really, really did. He knew what he was going through and that he would answer his prayer. Turn to Psalm 16. Surely Jesus was thinking of these verses here. And these are the verses you go to Acts chapter 2 when they talk about the resurrection of Christ when Peter is preaching there to the people, the masses in Jerusalem, he uses this chapter here. He uses these verses to talk about the resurrection. Jesus knew them too. Verse 7 we read, I will bless the Lord who has counseled me. Indeed, my mind instructs me in the night. I have set the Lord continually before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will dwell securely. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You will make known to me the path of life, and your presence is fullness of joy. To your right hand, there are pleasures forever. So all that, he knew it was going to be raised from the dead. And then come to the last verse there. He knew that he'd be in the presence of his Father. He knew he'd be at his right hand where there would be pleasures forever. He could see this, visualize this because of this promise here that we have in his word. Back to Psalm 22. So we'll go to Psalm 20, verse 24, because that then is the basis for what's happening here. That final line there in verse 24, he has heard. He knew that. The father had heard him. He knew his prayers. He knew they'd be answered. He knew the word. He understand what was going to happen then. So we look at this. Verse 22. I will tell of your name to my brethren in the midst of the assembly. I will praise you. 
And so Jesus then is going to talk about this hope. That's what pretty much the rest of this chapter is about, this hope, this future glory that, that he knew was coming. Now, it's a little bit uncertain. And I, I thought about this a lot. I really said, what is, what, who's talking here? Is verse 22 when it says, I will tell of your name to my brethren in the midst of the assembly. I will praise you. Is that talking about David? Or is that talking about Jesus? You see, I think it could be both. But I really do believe it was Jesus. And the reason I say that is you go, you go to John 17. I think it's believe it verse 2. It says, says, glorify your son that I may glorify you. And so mutually they were wanting to glorify each other. They wanted to honor each other. That's what's going on. So I believe he did praise his father. You know what it says in, in Philippians 2? It says every knee will bow, every tongue will, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to what? To the glory of the Father, you see. So you think about Jesus in the future, up in heaven and things, and reigning over the world. It's not like he didn't talk about his Father. I believe that he did. And so he says here, I will tell of your name. What's name? Name is the character of God. It's the purposes of God, the love of God, the holiness of God. When you talk to the word name, it encompasses all who his Father is. I will talk to people about your name, this great God. He is glorifying me, and I'm going to glorify him. That's what we see happening here. Then he says, I will tell of your name. Um, you who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him, all you descendants of Israel. So, so then he's, he's giving honor and praise to God. That's what we see here honor and praise to God in the midst of all the believers. And this thought is repeated in verse 25, which we read, from you comes my praise in the great assembly. So he's praising the Lord. That's what I believe is, is happening here. And third, what it says in these verses that in the future, all believers will be standing before the Lord, worshiping him, standing in awe of him. That's, that's what's going to happen. We continue. Verses 26 to 31. We're going to read these. I'm going to go through each one. 26 to 31. Um, afflicted will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him will praise the Lord. Let your heart live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord, and all families of the nations will worship you. For the kingdom is the Lord's, and he rules over the nations, and the, all the prosperous of the earth will eat and worship. All those who go down to the dust will bow before him, even he who cannot keep his soul alive. Posterity will serve him. It will be told of the Lord to the coming generations. They will come and will declare his righteousness to a people who will be born that he has performed it. She's on the cross. He knows that his father loves him, and he loves his father. He also has hope, as we're reading here. Again, understand, he was thinking about this. He was trusting his father. He knew the father's love, and he had this hope while he was on the cross. But here's a question. It's a good question. Is he talking here in these verses about the church age or the kingdom age to come? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. That's Matthew chapter 6. Or both. It's not clear. I will say this. I'll say a couple things. One is all the prophecies in the Old Testament talk about the future. They talk about Christ's first coming, a lot of prophecies there, and about his second coming. There's nothing in the, in the, in the Old Testament about the church age. Nothing. It's not there. So on one hand, you can say, well, it's all about the kingdom age. But I think at times God does share things that relates to our age too. So what we're going to see as we work through these verses just quickly here is that some refer to both, some refer to one, none refer just to the church age. Okay, that's, that's how I take it. That's my understanding. I've been thinking about this a lot this, this, this last week. But Back to verse 26. 
The afflicted will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him will praise the Lord. Let your heart live forever. The afflicted is a word you can think about it in a physical way, okay? But I believe he's talking about a spiritual way. It can also be translated as one who is humble. But it says they're ones who are seeking the Lord. The afflicted, the humble, the needy are seeking the Lord. And I believe they're the ones then who are saved. These are speaking of believers, okay? So you can say, well, this refers to the church age. That's true. It could. And, of course, I believe it refers to the kingdom age to come as well. And so these are believers, and they're praising the Lord. They're seeking the Lord. And it says they live forever. They have eternal life. 27, all the ends of the earth. And there's different thoughts here, different nuances. And all the one big theme here, these verses, I'm going to go separate them out. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations will worship before you. So everyone on the earth, all nations and all peoples, not just the Jews, but Gentiles. And I believe this includes unbelievers, okay? That's what I believe. And that's why I mentioned before the Philippians 2, 9, and 11. Every knee will bow and every tongue confess. And it talks about all these different regions of the universe. Everyone will bow before the Lord and give praise to God. Unbelievers, it'll be feigned worship. It won't be sincere, it won't be genuine by the unbelievers, but they will bow down. And I think that's an important point to understand. Right now we look at the world and, man, all these proud people out there, you know, doing their thing and they're sinners and just ignoring God. You understand? And what he's saying is everyone, everyone is going to bow down to the Lord. Everyone is going to worship the Lord. Psalm 67, 3 says, let all the peoples praise you. Now, that's not happening now. This isn't church age. No way, right? You know that. This is kingdom age. Every knee will bow. They'll have to. It's going to be interesting. He's going to rule with a rod of iron. Next, verse 28 the kingdom is the Lord's, and he rules over the nations. This is definitely kingdom age language. You can't get around it. It's not church age. Not at all. There will be a kingdom. This is Christ's kingdom. He will reign. He will rule. I said before, he will rule with a rod of iron. I, I can't wait to see that. I mean, don't you get excited about him ruling and being in charge and all perfect justice and holiness and everything's taken care of? It would be wonderful. Psalm 145, 13, many verses on the kingdom in the Bible, just this one I like. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. Your dominion endures through all generations. Then verse 29, we continue. All the prosperous of the earth will eat and worship. All those who go down to the dust will bow before him, even he who cannot keep his soul alive. So the, the first point out of this verse is those who are rich will fear the Lord will bow down to him and will worship him. And I don't think this is just talking about rich people that live during the kingdom age. I believe he's saying all rich people, those, and I think this is kingdom age language here, because again, as I said before, not everybody during this church age worships God. They don't. But during the kingdom age, everybody got to bow down to the Lord. So I believe he's talking about rich people during the kingdom age, whether they're saved or not. That's what he's saying. We, we, we look at this world now, and we know this. And, and Jesus talked about this in the, in the Gospels. He says it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. There is something about that where the rich and the prosperous and the elites and stuff, they're not saved. I'm not saying some aren't, but for the most part, they're not. And so he's saying, hey, in the future, every person's going to bow down. Even the rich people are going to bow down too. That's, that's what I believe he's saying. Then he says all those who die will bow to the Lord and will worship him. 
And of course, we know people are dying in the church age. People will be dying. We see this in, from Isaiah. People will be dying in the kingdom age as well. And, and, and the point he's trying to make again is that everyone, what, every person, whether they live or whether they die, is going to bow down to the Lord. That's what's going to happen. And I love this thought here. Everybody, whether they want to or not, that's what's going to happen. Jesus is making this point then. Because they're going to worship because he is the Lord and he is the king. And he will not, there's verses that say that, he will not let anybody worship anybody or anything else. Not at all. Verse 30 and 31. Posterity will serve him. It will be told of the Lord to the coming generations. They will come and declare his righteousness to a people who will be born that he has performed it. Posterity is a word that refers to your descendants. That also means seed. Your descendants, and, and I believe he's talking about both the church age here, also believers in the kingdom age, and what are they doing? What's it say they're doing here? They're going to be talking about the Lord. They're going to tell people about the Lord, that the Lord is righteous and, and we are unrighteous, and that, that Jesus Christ is the only answer to a person's sins. The only, only way to be saved is through Jesus Christ. That's what I believe he's, he's saying there. And this is our job. We know this. During this church age, it's our job to tell people. This is what we want our children to do, too, to tell people the truth, what's most important. There's so many things to talk about in this world. And sometimes I can get a little bit distracted. I've got to make sure I always focus on the main thing. What do people need more than anything else is Jesus Christ. And that should be our mission. That should be our desire. We think about people. We pray about people. And, and ask God to do this, to, to be working in their hearts and giving us opportunities open doors to share the gospel. And of course, then this message is going to be proclaimed in the kingdom age as well. Turn to Psalm 96. I believe this is what 96 is saying here. I believe it's a kingdom psalm. Verses 1 to 3, about telling people about the Lord. Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. You say that now, it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen before Christ comes back, but it will in the future. Sing to the Lord, bless his name, proclaim good tidings of his salvation from day to day. See that last phrase? Proclaim good tidings of his salvation from day to day. That is, the gospel will be preached all over the world during the kingdom age to come. Tell of his glory among the nations, his wonderful deeds among the peoples. Great is the Lord, greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. So it's, 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 read this psalm with that whole thought in mind. Is Yeah, it can, you can apply it here to some degree. But it's really the application, the really fulfillment, the, the, the result of what Christ does is seen in the future as talked about in these verses right here. I want to conclude with just three points here. First comes from the last phrase. Go back to Psalm 22. I never saw this till just recently, working on this message. 31, they'll come and declare his righteousness to a people who'll be born, that he has performed it. That's the word. That's the phrase. That he has done it. And I believe this refers to Christ's finished work on the cross. You know the verse in John 19.30 when Jesus cries out, It is finished. You know that? So here, this psalm is about Jesus suffering and dying for our sins. And it concludes by saying that the work to pay for our sins is done. He's performed it. It's finished. Concluded. Second point is this. Not from this psalm, but just the big picture. Jesus Christ is 
Lord and King. Not long from now, there'll be a rapture. Believers on this earth will be taken up into heaven, joined with all believers from all time and glorified. That's to get your brand new body. And then shortly after that, because they'll be in heaven watching the wrath of God being poured out on earth. And after that, the kingdom. Christ will descend upon this earth and he will begin his reign and we as Christians will reign with him. The third point, what I mentioned before, tells us what helped Jesus to keep going, to endure to his end, and it's key for you. It is so important. It was his, he, he knew the Father's love and he was trusting in his Father and he had hope. All three of those were critically important. He knew the Father's love. He trusted in his Father. And he had hope. He knew there'd be this future we read about here, just briefly. This amazing, wonderful, and glorious future. Let's turn to conclude with Revelation chapter 7. I mentioned before, it says there in Psalm 22 that the believers will be standing before the Lord and this is what Revelation chapter 7 tells us is going to happen. Verse 9, After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could count, from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches were in their hands, and they cry out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. And we will be there. As believers, we will be there. I mean, think about that. I mean, some people say you can't know the future. Yes, we can. Not everything, but some things. That's one thing. Think about it. There will come a day when you're all together with all these other believers, standing before the Lord, worshiping and giving praise and honor to him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time. We bless you for bringing us together. Thank you, Lord, for your words. Psalm 22, a picture, Lord, a good picture, really a lot of detail about what you went through for us, Jesus. We can't imagine. We've all had difficulties, physical difficulties, and, and emotional and relational and spiritual difficulties. We've all had that. But we, we, nothing, nothing at all like what you went through for us. And so we say thank you. And so we say thank you for doing that. Might, might our hearts be stirred by this, this great love that you have for us? Sometimes we go along and we try to be satisfied by other things and must see that only real satisfaction comes from knowing you and knowing your love and knowing your goodness and your mercy in our hearts and lives. We, we thank you for that, Father. Thank you again, Father. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you for Holy Spirit. Because you applied the work of Christ to our lives when we got saved. That's what you did. We thank you. Now you still live in us and, and help us then to keep going to the end of our life and then we'll be forever with you, Father. And Lord Jesus in spirit in heaven, we thank you. So we just pray this now. Pray for all the people who couldn't be here. I think of the two carols, Lord. Pray that you'd help them, strengthen them. Lord, and, and others that couldn't be here. But, Lord, we just thank you so much for your love for us, your kindness. Just lead us now. And thank you. This is a communion Sunday. How appropriate that we can take communion on this Sunday as we talk about you, Lord Jesus, and what you did for us on the cross. Just pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This time we'll have our communion time. Musicians can come up.
I invite you to stand as we uh, sing to prepare our hearts for the Lord's Supper. Great hymn. Talk about the grace of God beyond our comprehension. Grace greater than all our sin. Grace. 
Thank you. May be seated. It's a wonderful truth, grace that is greater than all our sin. It's a wonderful thing that God wants us to do this, to join together as uh, believers and to together collectively thank him, worship him, praise him for his son Jesus, for who he is and for what he's done for us personally and collectively. Turn in your Bibles. If you have a Bible there, just listen along. Hebrews chapter 12, first three verses. Hebrews 12. One to three. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with the endurance the race that is set before us. It's a great verse. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. We have a race, and God wants to be running with endurance. What we're to in today's is, is important because it helps us. We need this time to be strengthened, to be refreshed by the love of the Lord, by thinking about what Christ did for us. Verse 2, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So here we read, he endured the cross. We understand that. He despised the shame. He was victorious for us, and we're to fix our eyes on him, not just today, but really every day. But then that last verse, particularly applicable to now. Consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Consider just means think. Think about Christ. Go back and read Psalm 22 again. Think about what he did for us. Go through the Gospels, Matthew 26 and 27, Luke chapter 23 and 24. Think about what he did for us. Consider him who endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that you will not grow weary or lose heart. All of us get tired. I get tired. Physically, of course, but spiritually, emotionally, I get tired. We all grow weary. But he says, you don't want to, you don't want to grow weary. And what we're doing here today is to help us not grow weary, to be strengthened by the love of God. It says in Jude 21, keep yourselves in the love of God. That's a duty upon yourself. You're to do what you need to do so you can continually be feeding off the love of God. Keep yourself in the love of God is a command. And what we do today is important. We need to know the love of the Lord freshly every day. And that's why then we take this time. So just take a minute. We want our hearts to be clean and pure before him. I mentioned this first before Psalm 139. Search me, O God, and know my heart, and try me and know my anxious thoughts, and see if there be any hurtful way in me. So take time. We want our hearts all to be right and holy before we then together partake of the bread and the cup.
Thank you, Father, so much. And Lord Jesus and Holy Spirit for what you have done for us. And we should be super, super excited, thinking, hey, yes, I've, I've sinned. I've done things wrong, but I'm forgiven, completely righteous and holy in the sight of God. And we need that. We need that truth from Psalm 51. Create in me a, a pure heart, Lord. Uh, restore to me the joy of my salvation. We, we need to be ones, and this day is important for that, that we're thrilled by this. We can get excited about so many things in the world, but this is important, what's most important, that we're forgiven and righteous, that we are now your children, and thank you for that. We just bless you now. Just thank you that we can take these elements as, as symbols of what you've done for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. First. Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23. It says, For I received, I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The same way he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Again, Father, we thank you. We praise you. We bless you. And we're going to keep praising and blessing you forever and ever and ever because you are our God and Father and you love us so much and we love you too might you help us just to be better Lord serving you and loving you and doing what you want us to do and, and just remembering you as it says there in Hebrews 12 fixing our eyes on Jesus but again thank you now for this time this day for everyone here we pray this in Jesus name few announcements here. Um, I'll first say, um, Carol Hardy, as you know, is, has cancer, is going through chemo, and she had her chemo treatment Tuesday, so the first week after that chemo, week and a half, is the hardest. So she wasn't feeling good today. Of course, she couldn't make it, but Bruce wanted to be with his wife because she's having a rough day. So keep praying for her as they go through that. It's a process. This chemo part will go for another four or five months. And then the surgery, another four or five months of treatments after that. So it's a really long ordeal. Uh, upcoming events this Thursday, we're having our Monday Thursday. We do this every year. No Wednesday night meeting. So it's going to be at 7 o'clock. Make note of that. It's not 6.45. It's 7 o'clock this Thursday. We'll be here to, again, celebrate the Lord's death and resurrection. Um, with that, then, the prophecy meeting and the men's meeting both push back a week. Prophecy meeting is not this Wednesday, but the next Wednesday on the 12th, and then the men's meeting on the, the 14th. And let me also say, this is a good time this coming week to invite people to church. Uh, this Sunday, it's, it's for some people, it's about the only time to go to church all year. So if you see people, invite them to come. Have a good time as we sing to the Lord and, and worship together and hear his word then have fellowship. Thank you. I invite you to stand for our last hymn.
I don't know if you've ever looked or not, but there are books that have the history of how some of the hymns have written, and it's amazing the, uh, the way that the hymn came about. Amazing Grace is one of the most famous hymns that's ever written. It was written by a man who was a sea captain on a ship that bought and brought and sold trades uh, slaves in America. And he looked at his life and realized the evil that he was perpetrating upon all these people and realized he was a great sinner against God and was looking for God to forgive his sins and show mercy. And this is the song that he wrote, the poem and the song, Amazing Grace That Saved a Wretch Like Me. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Psalm 86, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, my God, with all my heart, and will glorify your name forever, for your loving kindness toward me is great. You've delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. Amen.
Mr. Kenny.